We want to thank our sponsor, BenderLift. BenderLift is a patient lift device that buckles handles around the patient's torso so firefighters can safely lift patients of any size with ease. The most injury-prone non-fire ground activity a firefighter does is lift a patient. If you're lifting heavy patients, and let's be honest, all of us are, then you're going to want to check out the bender lift so you can avoid getting injured from lifting a patient. Vince, have you ever lifted up a heavy patient? Or any patient at all? Um, I've blown my back out so many times lifting heavy patients. I can't count the number of times. So something like bender lift is a pretty awesome product, especially if it's going to save me from... Uh, having to lay up from the job or go to medical or just work the rest of my day in pain. Absolutely, and they'll, they'll let anyone try it out for free. Doesn't matter what your role is within the department. Just sign up for a free field trial on their website and they'll send you a set of bender lifts to try out for a month or so, absolutely free. We use them in our department and I recommend you give them a try. Just Google bender lift to watch some videos and sign up for a free trial. Bender lift, the new slogan should be bender lift, save your back, <laughs> save your back. Well, welcome to Chicago's Bravest Stories. Uh, we have a special guest today. We have on the phone, uh, are you in Boston right now, Mr. Miller? I'm about 40 miles outside of Boston. Okay, on the phone with us is uh, author Retired of- special agent, you wanna go? Okay. ATF, <laughs> Wayne Miller, well, acclaimed I'm, author? Acclaimed author. Wayne Miller of the book Burn Boston Burn. Uh, how are you today, sir? Thank you for having me, guys. I'm wonderful. It's a beautiful, hot, muggy, 90 degrees today. <laughs> that does sound beautiful. <laughs> well, we, uh, I, we've been kind of putting this together, and this is going to be basically like a prequel to your actual uh, arrival here where we sit down in the studio, have a cocktail, and talk about your book. But we just wanted to cover a couple of things and why we have you on the phone. Uh, can you know, uh, Corey and I have both uh, been through the book, and for those people who are listening, kind of give them a little background on you. Sure, on, my, on myself. Yes, please. Sure. Uh, you know, I joined up with ATF back in 1976. I know it sounds like ancient times, <laughs> but uh, uh, I did gun cases my first four years on the job. I actually had a, a 46 machine gun case. It was a stolen goods, a million dollars worth on the case, and 17 other guns. Um, that was pretty good. I worked on several bombing cases, including a Boston police officer who was killed by a bomb, and one out in New York State. And I worked a lot of arson cases starting 1980 until I retired in 01. And uh, I would say... With ATF, probably worked on uh, twelve to 1,500 fire cases and explosion cases. And then when I went private afterwards for another 18 years, altogether in 38 years of doing fire and explosions, probably about uh, 2,300 fire scenes. I became a certified fire investigator in 1988 and uh, concentrated on fire scenes and still working cases. Well, what got you into... Um got you to think about joining the ATF? You know, that's one of the good, lucky stories in somebody's life. Um, I went to uh, engineering school first, University of Connecticut, and I hated it from the first minute. <laughs> <laughs> by, the, by my sophomore year, I went to Bryant College, which is now Bryant University in Rhode Island, and they had a criminal justice program. I loved that program from the first minute. 
and I did very well in it. And I went to a winter session class, and I raised my hand a lot. You know, one of those concentrated two or three week courses during the winter break. Yep. And it was a it was a drug class, and I raised my hand so much that the instructor, who was the head of Rhode Island Division of Drug Control, he invited me up after class to talk to me and invited me to do undercover work <laughs> for the state of Rhode Island. So. As a junior in college, I started doing undercover work in the state, not at the college itself, but around the state. And I'd go on weekends and do undercover work. And that job got me down to Cape Cod when I graduated, and I worked a summer on Cape Cod as an undercover police officer buying drugs um, during 1975. And they had a uh, class at uh, one-day career day at Bryant College. And nobody had ever really heard of ATF yet because it became its own bureau in 1972. So they were there along with the FBI and, you know, other agencies. And I said, that sounds really interesting. So I applied in 1975, took the test, did extremely well. And um, I got interviewed in April of 75 and then got hired um, June 21st, first day of summer. Did you put on your resume that you had already done undercover work as a junior in college? Yeah, that was part of my interview, too. <laughs> 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 yeah. They probably so hired really you on the spot. It really worked very well for me. Uh, Boston actually increased their office from 40. Boston covers all New England, okay? They increased their office from 40 agents to 80 in 1976. That's when I went on, 1976. And... Um, from 1976 until 2001, when I retired, they only put another 40 agents on over that 25-year period. So it's where you are in life sometimes, how you get hired, and how it affected my life by getting on that job. And uh, I stayed in Boston my whole career, which is fairly unusual, too. A lot of guys move around. And so the... The premise of the book takes place uh, in 1982 is when you first caught that case. Is that correct? That is correct. But uh, and this is but before you get called, how long have that just? So I, I know I'm jumping ahead because uh, um, we don't want to give too much of this away. But um, can you give us um, on this particular case that the book is about? Um, can I give us the the cliff notes of the beginning of this, because it, um, especially with this podcast called Chicago's Bravest Stories, um, and we've had uh, guys like Kevin Casey who were on the movie Backdraft, it's going to kind of have some similarities and it's going to resonate with people who have seen that movie because the the kind of um, kind the reason of these guys kind of, did yeah. this was very closely related to how that movie Backdraft played out. Exactly. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was on a Florida uh, radio program, and the speaker there suggested uh, the same connection between my story and Backdraft. So I actually watched it again to see the familiar points, you know, the, these parallel type of points. So the Austin Group in Boston, now, ATF started four arson groups in the country, um, New York, Chicago, L.A., and Boston, because cities were burning down uh, during that time period, late 70s into the early 80s. So 82 is when 
March of 82 is when the Boston Arson Group formed. These guys, nine guys, I don't know how it can happen, in a sense. They joined in a conspiracy. Three of them were police officers. Three of them were firefighters. They were also fire buffs, guys who belonged to the Boston Sparks Association, guys who go out and collect memorabilia, take pictures, and, you know, run to fires, that type of thing, watch firefighting operations. Um, they really like, you know, the trucks and the apparatus. And um, these guys banded together because of Proposition 2.5 here in Massachusetts. It was a tax-cutting measure. And the cities and towns did not know where their money was going to come from to pay employees. So who gets laid off? Teachers, firefighters, police officers. Boston lost 600 firefighter positions out of 1,700. More than 33% of the department got laid off or had to retire. And they closed 22 firehouses. Uh, engine company just sitting idle. These guys said, the only way we can resolve this issue is by burning down the city. So nine guys joined together and started with their first fire February 1982. By coincidence, our arson group formed two weeks later, March 1982. And we started working the case immediately without knowing that there was a connection between these fires. Well, in the book that, um, I mean, you you do state that um, these group of guys consisted of firefighters, police officers, and other, like, municipal workers. And, um, uh, man, where was I going with that? Well, and, and again, like these fire buffs, um, I, I know out east you guys call them sparks. Um, we've got... Trying to think what we uh, what we kind of title these guys as, but but yeah, like fans. like fans almost, fans. yeah, where they'll show up to right. our fires and snap pictures, and um, some of these guys have photography companies where they'll sell pictures um, of us to to local um, news channels and to us, and it's again honestly that's one of the most and this book is it. The turns and bounds that this thing takes has just blown my mind. Um, I'm, I'm actually on my second read of it because I just I, I feel like every time I reread it, I catch something that I missed before. Um, and like these guys were what later ended up becoming the the largest arson case in the United States, Mister Miller. Or well, I, you know, the front of the book, the subtitle is the largest arson case. Is that still the it's case today? You still own that title? Uh, no, I'm going to tell you particulars about it. That's actually a quote from the U.S. Attorney. And in 1982, it was. But then if you consider the John Orr case in California, a single individual who was setting fires for 20 years, or the Thomas Sweat case out of Washington, D.C. area, who was setting fires for 25 years, he claims about 350. I'm talking 264 building fires here only. I mean, these guys also set hundreds of dumpsters on fire and, they, and some stolen cars on fire and stuff well, like that. Well, and that's so, only in a two-year period. That's correct. And it's nine guys. Right. Whereas other cases, you have single people going out setting these fires. Right. I so, mean, is, is the fact can, that there can, were nine guys, made it? did that make it easier for you guys to catch them? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Well, where uh, I was going with it earlier was the fact that um, 
you at you know I'm sure in the beginning you didn't understand the reasoning behind these fires, but when it became apparent to you what was going on at some point, you know, being law enforcement yourself, did you sympathize with these guys? Well, it was a strange situation going on. You know, we thought maybe it was the union guys from Boston that were doing it too, you know? Right. And, uh, you know, you could have some understanding that so many losing their jobs that, they become militant and they might do this, you know, but the, the ends don't justify the means. But um, even Boston firefighters, they would talk to these guys unknowingly and say, geez, these guys are setting these fires and it's keeping us so busy. And uh, I wish they'd do it on my group, my, my tour, you <laughs> right. know, that type of thing. Yeah. Or we should buy the guy fifty-five gallon drum of gasoline. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got to help these guys out. Yeah, the you know? with how cavalier. As I'm reading the book, with just how cavalier these guys were, and how just got ballsier and ballsier, and, and dropping little comments to to chiefs and firemen and battalion chiefs and and higher level guys. It just well, they were sending mind. notes to you guys as well, right? What, right, Wayne? <laughs> well. These guys were absolutely crazy. They actually made phone calls to uh, departments, fire departments, when they set fires outside the city. They moved outside the city because of our surveillances around Boston. So they would screw with us, and they'd go uh, five miles away, 20 miles away, 30 miles away, and set four or five fires in one night in that particular vicinity. And they would call the fire department and say, Mr. Flair is here, or Mr. You know, Boston Firebug is in your town. Uh, you better get ready. And then they sent a letter to us. And it is just like a Hollywood uh, movie type of letter. All the cutout letters. Magazine clippings, it. yeah. It's on one, on one sheet. And they sent it to the TV station that was covering them the most. And they wanted it on TV. But we ended up getting it. And eventually, well, ATF didn't get it. Uh, initially, Boston Fire and Boston Police, and they fingerprinted it and put it in a file drawer. ATF didn't know about it for another year and a half. Oh, it took you guys a year to realize that you had a huge piece of evidence that could have resolved this? <laughs> well, the first fingerprint uh, done by Boston PD didn't had smudges and stuff, and they had nobody to compare it to. Right. So when the- we got our hands on it, we finally had suspects, and the ATF lab did enhance print and it came back to master arsonist greg bemis yeah we actually have um and just some background for people who don't really understand the role of a fire investigator or arson investigator um in our area and probably similarly by you guys wayne is that um when we are investigating a fire locally um jurisdictionally we'll deal with other investigators that we have in our area will deal with larger city investigators and kind of our end game. If there's a fire that involves a, um, um, a fire that involves a church, a fire that involves alcohol or tobacco or firearms our uh, one of our options is to involve the ATF and um, just recently dealing with a, um, dealing with a situation that I had on a, on a, um, arson case that we had, um, we were actually able to get some footage from a store that got firebombed and um, 
we were very limited in our resources, and we contacted the ATF uh, agent in our area here, and you guys have the capabilities now to use um, uh, facial facial recognition scanning. And, I mean, the ATF is kind of our end game for where we want to bring all of our cases to um, as it pertains to an arson case because the resources and your guys' uh, ability to, to really push this thing forward, which, again, back at that time when, when you were working on this case and other ones, brand new to the arson field, right? Right. I mean, ATF had just gotten into it, and, you know, we had to learn from the state and local guys. We had to learn from the fire academies, et cetera. Um, and I want people to realize something. It's 1982 to 1984. There's no surveillance cameras almost any place. There are no cell phones. There's no GPS, you know. So this was, old, lot- this was old school detective stuff that you guys were, right. like, Right, no lucky breaks by by <laughs> reviewing a vehicle driving down the street on a surveillance camera right. somewhere. You know? How how deep in this investigation were you when you guys realized that you were dealing with um, like uh, police officers and firemen? Oh boy, because it, it, uh, it took a while for you guys to actually put two and two together that you guys were yeah. dealing with you know not just some fire fan out there. Exactly. We first got our first break in November, November 21st, 1982, which is what, nearly 10 months after the first fire. And by November 21st, they had set at least ooh, 140 to 160 fires. You know, you're talking two to seven fires in a day when they go out. Not every single day, but up to 40 in a month. So by November, we got our first break. And that's when we first learned that we had uh, some police and firefighters involved. What well, can you tell us? What that break was? Mm-hmm. Sure, I can. Um, it actually was a TV cameraman and a Cambridge, Massachusetts fire investigator who are best friends, and uh, they headed out to this lumberyard fire, which is right on the uh, uh, Boston Dedham, Massachusetts line, and. This lumberyard had been hit a month before, and it was a major fire. So this particular one, the flames were 150 feet above the building. And we're talking a building that was two to 300 feet long by 150 feet wide, full of lumber. And two there were two devices placed inside. And the arsonist, which typical, we had so many fire fans running to these fires, so it's not unusual to see same people over and over. Well, the Boston videographer, he's uh, was one of the major stations he worked for, and he was also a fire buff. And he's my biggest supporter today, outside <laughs> of my wife. He is my absolute <laughs> biggest supporter. And uh, uh, he came around a bend, and he, he saw these four guys on a pile of lumber, and he put his camera over in their direction. And the Boston cop, out of uniform, the Boston cop, pulled out of his shoulder holster a handgun and he waved it in the air for a couple of seconds like he was on a bucking bronco <laughs> and uh, that's caught on film and because of that we were shown these videos the next day and because of that we went and knocked on his door law enforcement to law enforcement you know yeah, yeah. 
Bobby, do you know anything about this? Uh, what's going on? And he said, well, I'm just a fire buff. And he says, I run to fires with these guys. I don't know anything about the fires. Well, we had a lucky little break. There was a firebox. These guys started stealing, you know, the old fireboxes on pedestals and yeah. corners of buildings. Yeah. They stole 14 of them that year. And Boston's usually missing maybe one to two a year. That year, Boston was missing 15. And they, it was sitting right in his living room, right on his floor. And my partner at the time, Billy Murphy, walks over as we're leaving the interview with the guy who's given us nothing. He says, oh, my, my grandfather used to make lamps out of these things. I mean, Billy got the number right off the front, you know, the painted number. And uh, we went back to the office, and that was one of the ones stolen. So we ended up getting a local warrant the next day, and we got the box and Bobby came in and did not confess, but we're on the right track. Yeah. That and was that, your big that's break. That's things huh? kind of broke open from there. That, that was the first big break. And then uh, we think it, things developed over the next year. It still took another year. Um, we didn't get to speak to Bobby again after he had, he came in and took a polygraph and flunked it terribly. And he had an attorney. His attorney said, Bobby can't talk. And I said, what the heck do you mean Bobby can't talk? And uh, he said, I, I can't tell you, he can't talk, that's it. And that was December 1982 when that happened. We didn't get to speak to him again until January 1984, 14 months later, wow. before yeah. we got to speak to him again. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And well, what I love about you talking about this now is that I, I like how you opened the book with this. And, um, and again, like you kind of gave the little teaser on like, how how wild these guys were acting and and then you kind of jumped into the full story of where and it's super cool to hear from the arsonist perspective of what their thoughts were behind this and where they were going with things um we uh we actually you might laugh about this when we um me and a, a buddy of mine are working with um some uh, fire modules in one of our uh, local academies around here. And I was actually trying to, we were trying to figure out how, um, how I can recreate this device that they used. Yeah, um, I wanted to talk about that yeah. the, with the cigarette and the matches. Yeah. I've sure. seen that in a couple movies where they've actually done that, Well, they had it hooked up to a lantern and then the lantern would fall to the ground. And, yeah. um, and if, if you guys have to read the book of about this improvised like ignition device, which is a cigarette wrapped into a matchbook, so that when it burns down, the matchbook goes on fire, and it lit this uh, bag of lantern fluid with rags in it. Yeah, and so yep. this wasn't as sophisticated as some of these movies, but that kind of ingenuity. Right, and and that's and that's kind of like I don't want to I don't want to steal your your thunder, Wayne, but like I think that that's what was so beautiful about about this whole case was that like as as rugged and, and kind of bare bones as this device was, this was one of the things that kind of kept you guys from really breaking too much open, right? Right, as simple as that device was, you've got to realize there's no remnants left yeah. at, at most of these fires. It's not like the fuel seeped into the ground. Plus, there was no accelerant fetching canines back then either. That's another right. issue. But, um, um, Everything from this device either burned up and then gets hit by hoses. And so you don't find anything. Right. And until they added, they added a tire to it later on. The tire gave us 
an indication that these fires are now linked for sure with the same people because the tire steel belts would be there and the bottom threads of the tire might still remain. Uh, one thing I want people to know is, Corey, doesn't it read somewhat like fiction because of so much um, dialogue between the arsonists and stuff? Oh, my right? God. I know. It, I know. It literally is like a movie that, you know, um, that you were uh, living out with the way that they were kind of taunting you and, you know, they even gave themselves nicknames and, oh, yeah. you know, just their, their, just their blatancy to mess yeah. with you guys. Yeah. This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories is brought to you by Jenico Roofing. You can find them on Facebook, J-E-N-I-C-O. Vince, who knows building construction and roofing? Firefighters do. And this company is firefighter owned and operated. So Jenico are specialized in residential roof tear-offs here in Chicago and the suburbs. They are licensed and insured. You can get a hold of our friend Jim at Jenico at 815-693-5665. Jenico. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's like uh, it, it is it's like a movie. I mean, hearing hearing these conversations that they would have and talk to each other and and you know, uh, I won't say to their credit, but like in their minds, they were doing the right thing. You know, they were trying their best to to get firefighters back to work and police officers back to work. And I mean, they they had some some you know strange. Uh, strange background how how they felt about these different departments but it was just it, it's it. and they had me too like i sympathize for that and then you get to the part in the book where you had six firefighters injured at one of the one of the fires and uh, we had 20 the one that you're talking about was 22 22 mm-hmm. yeah, they came to the roof and broke the backs and broke the legs and landed in flames yeah i mean because uh-huh. when it it the progression of the fires started getting bigger and bigger, right? And they initially were just, they weren't trying to, they were, were they targeting more like abandoned uh, structures and stuff like that just to start fires? And then they kind of got more careless as they got further into these fires. Absolutely. We had so many abandoned, uh, we call them uh, three-deckers, triple-deckers. Uh, three family homes stacked. Um, and we had so many abandoned ones and just run down buildings that they had their choice of a lot of places like that. And they did that on purpose because they wouldn't hurt any civilians that way. And most of the time, firefighters wouldn't have to spend much time inside an abandoned building. Right. So that's what their initial goal was. But then they weren't getting enough press still. So they went to commercial buildings like one warehouse on June 3rd, 1982. A thousand feet long by three hundred feet wide. Yeah, um, and and like and these um, and, and these fires. I mean, for for guys local around us, like they were going to uh, the, these fires that they were causing. They were. I mean, I don't know if you remember, Vince. Seven, eight, nine alarm fires. In, oh yeah, you know, in a night, in a yeah. night, they'd have three, you know, nine elevens, you know, around here, and and the idea of you know one. Would shut down, uh, would shut down news outlets for a month around here. <laughs> let alone a couple in a night. Right. I mean, there were dumpster fires, but we're not talking about the dumpster fires. We're, these are big fires, and you know, you 
have the ATF chasing you guys down. Now, I, the question I had for you, Wayne, is, you know, um, you know, obviously ATF, uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, how did you guys transition into uh, arson? Well, um, we always had the explosive laws from uh, the 1970s. We had the explosive laws, and it was a weird transition. We actually had to prove in the early days that somebody, that a building or someplace could have an explosion or did have an explosion either way. But if you let's say you poured some gasoline in the room where you're sitting in today, and if you do it in the right amount, you could have an explosion. Oh. We had to prove we had to prove <laughs> that first. But 1982, again, it all comes together to 1982. President Reagan signed into law by adding two words to the explosion law. He added two words only: if you damage or destroy a building by explosion or fire. That's all that was added, or fire. So we no longer had to prove the explosion part, just that there was a fire. Oh, okay. So you guys got into there by a technicality almost, huh? Well, that that law was an ATF for all buildings that affected interstate commerce. So single-family homes, uh, small apartments. Whose, jur- whose jurisdiction was that prior to you guys like going after it? Nobody, right. nobody's local just local authorities, yeah. huh? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that that's yeah. kind of cool that you guys actively sought that out to, um, you know, want to do something like that. Yeah. I mean, like you know, I don't think the FBI or anybody like that, um, from everything that that I was researching, didn't want to have anything to do with that. Yeah. Well, that was actually given to ATF that we had the explosion law, which was ATF's jurisdiction. By adding the two words or fire was given directly to ATF to work on. But prior to that, you guys had to make the case that this was going to be yours because of that there was would be an explosion in that building. Right. And again, it still had to be a commercial building. Right. Yeah. And uh, I, there was a point that I wanted to finish up on uh, sure. uh, that I was talking about before. The reason it reads like fiction is because of Greg Bemis. Greg was present at at least 260 of the 264 fires. And I interviewed Greg eventually. I spent two to 400 hours leading up to trial with Greg. And then Greg wrote a journal when he was in prison. I have that journal. And the dialogue that Greg told me about in those two to 400 hours is also in his journal. And that journal is incorporated. That's where you get the arsonist view. That's why you know exactly what they were thinking and doing and saying. Wow. I didn't see that. I didn't see that. So it was actually his journal that you almost used as an outline for for getting the story. Wow. Yeah, I mean, from, so... From their point of view, yeah. So, so going along the fiction, in the Perry Mason-style drama <laughs> of Wayne Miller, who <laughs> plays Special Agent Wayne Miller? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Ryan, Ryan Reynolds? Yes, oh, go man. big. Go Ryan, big. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, he's probably not as good looking as you were back then. We'll settle for that. The comedy. He can't, he can't knock the comedy. Um, 
Mr. Bill, well, I, I tell you, we we said this before we started, but I, I could talk to you for hours. I can't wait till you come into town. Right. Super excited about having a drink with you. Um, yeah, I don't want to cut this short. I like got a million more questions. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> I know. Where before you know before we go too far into saying goodbye, where can people find your book? Well, I really wish people would go to my website because I added a lot of things to my website that okay. they can look at, and I have quite a few posts over the last. Years. All right, give out that um, website. It's burnbostonburn.com. That's pretty All easy. one word. But oh. even if you just, if you put in burn Boston burn, you'll see I've been on several uh, TV programs. Um, I've been on several podcasts, several uh, radio shows, and they're all in there. If you just hit burn Boston burn, uh, it pops right up on Google. Okay, but and nothing as my- prestigious as Chicago's Bravest Stories podcast. Is Not that at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we got that on tape. We're uh- <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was uh, you know it's it's funny because when uh, when we first started talking about this, um, we uh, we were super excited about um, about sitting down with you. I think at that time you hadn't even done done a podcast or a. Um, or really a ton of media at that point, and now now going down the line, you've you're probably got a dozen in, don't you? Uh, public probably approaching a dozen. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, chasing down uh, Wayne Miller is like investigating uh, nine <laughs> arsonists in 1982. <laughs> <laughs> so we finally cl- we finally closed this finally caper. Closed the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, if you guys also want to find Mr. Wayne Miller, he will be speaking at the. International Association of Arson Investigators, our local Illinois chapter, um, he'll be doing a um, he'll be doing a sit down on Thursday, September twenty fourth, I believe. Right, Mister Miller? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, you guys can go to the um, Illinois IAAI website, il i. AAI.com to register for that. Um, he's also on the website, uh, firearson.com to register for that, to sit down with him, um, to sit down and hear that he'll be, uh, registration ends on September 8th of 2020. Um, and again, it, this book is a great read. I, uh, I strongly we recommend it. We haven't even it. covered like the, I think we got oh, four pages into this book cause there's the corruption <laughs> goes deep. Uh, you guys were met with all kinds of resistance politically and everything else. Uh, it, you know, we didn't even cover a lot of the cool stuff. The, I know. You know, uh, so get the book. This is my suggestion. Get the book, then go meet Wayne in, um, at He's his good. speaking engagements. Yeah. And, you know, then you can ask him firsthand all these questions because I, I still have a bunch of questions and I'm going to save them from when we sit down at, uh, at, in the studio here and we have a drink and then I'm going to hammer you with all these questions that I'm writing down right now. Absolutely. Uh, they can also get it on Amazon, on Walmart online and Target. But, but you want them to um, go to the website because there's so much more information on that website. Um, I, I will sign the book and put it in the mail myself and send it to you. I mean, come uh, on, guys. You, He's going to sign know. it for you. Let's <laughs> get that book, man. You know? <laughs> what, do you, uh, what do you Boston boys drink when you, when you uh, are sitting down? Sitting down at the pub? Oh, during the summer, I like a gin and something. Uh, and, uh, but I love my beer, too. So 
perfect. We'll make sure we'll have a nice, nice cold for you. When Do you, you guys show actually up. drink Sam Adams out there in Boston? Or uh, there's quite a few Sam Adams drinkers out here. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted you know? to make sure that 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 guy was. It wasn't uh, fake news. That it was wasn't. <laughs> <out> <laughs> I wanted to hear from an actual Boston guy that they drink that Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. All right. Well, it yeah. has been. Uh, honor to have you on and the only reason we're cutting it short is because i want to save some stuff for when you actually get here or else this would be a definitely a two-hour podcast oh, so thank you I so much <laughs> <laughs> well we're gonna hold you to that yeah. so uh again go to the website burn boston burn one word and uh he's got the uh speaking engagement coming up get the book uh from the website and he'll sign it and um, anything else uh, you got coming up that you want to promote before we sign off? Well, too many things have been canceled because of the virus. Yeah. Uh, so actually, the Chicago one is the first one. There's a local library here in Massachusetts that's given me an, uh, an award that's been given to people like David McCullough. You know who David McCullough is? No. He's, he's done, oh, he's done to, tremendous, like me. Uh, 1776, uh, that's the name of the book. And he's, oh, he's famous on. PBS, uh, he's been around for a long time, um, and a lot of other people, but this library decided to give me an award, but hopefully that's still on for uh, September. So, yeah, but, um, this, this I've virus is really putting a wrench in everything. Oh, yes, I've had 16 events canceled this summer. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can get back to normal when the whole world gets back to normal, and uh, yeah. we can... Uh, um, you know, people can get more exposure to you and uh, get more exposure for this book because this book is is really awesome. It's like a a true crime, uh, like fantasy novel, but that actually took place. Right so, now, I have two two very big producers looking at possibly doing something with it. Well, I mean, when it when this thing becomes a big blockbuster movie. I want you to not forget the little guys at Chicago's Braver Story Podcast, please. You all supported me <laughs> along the way. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm tired. I, I said it before. I'll say it again, Mr. Miller, okay? Corey Lieber, you can find me. I'll, like, I, I can take a little bit of a hit to play the star role in this movie, but it's you know just know that I'm doing you guys the favor with that. It's neither. <laughs> Apply for your sad card now. Oh, got it, got it, got it. <laughs> well, thank you again for being on, and uh, we're going to track you down when uh, all this nonsense gets done and when you get back to Chicago, okay? Guys, I really appreciate it, and we'll see you soon. Thank, thank you, you, Mr. Sir. Miller. Thank you, guys. This has been a Fire and Iron Media production. You have something to say, people want to listen. How is that, Daddy? The opinions and views are that of Chicago's bravest stories and their guests. They do not necessarily reflect the views of any municipal governments, fire protection districts, fire departments, EMS, or law enforcement organizations.